Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. In 1897, Britain celebrated Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, 60 years on the throne. But the show of pomp and majesty on London's streets concealed a very different royal story. Behind palace gates, a secret war was raging over Queen Victoria's shocking relationship with a servant. Some said he was on the make, others that he was a spy, but worst of all, he was an Indian. It was a relationship that violated Victorian taboos of race and class and set the Queen on a collision course with her royal household, who made their feelings plain. You are an imposter. You are from a very low class and can never be called a gentleman. This just enraged Victoria. The worse the attacks got, the more she defended him. There was a place for everyone, and everyone had a place. But Kareem didn't have a place. If one knew him today, he would be a pain in the ass. Abdul was not greedy. Abdul was brown, and therefore he was a threat. And the Queen loved him more than she loved them. That really is what it was about. This is a tale of love and loathing at the heart of the British court. Over the extraordinary relationship between the most powerful empress on earth and her Indian servant, Abdul Karim. In June 1887, in the 50th year of Queen Victoria's reign, a tall, handsome stranger walked into the Queen's life, and ten years of trouble began. Abdul, when he was young, when he first appeared at court, looked wonderful. Queen Victoria always had a great appreciation of male beauty, and so when she saw these gorgeous clothes and sashes and turbans um, kissing her feet, how could she um, resist them? Abdul Karim was one of two Indian servants who had arrived as gifts from Her Majesty's Indian Empire. His role was to serve as the Queen's kitmagar, or table hand. But Victoria soon found Abdul was a man of many talents. We don't know exactly what Abdul said in that first year when he starts to really come to her attention. All we know is that somehow he must have appealed to her romantic interest in the Orient. He started to tell her stories of of India, and that hooked her. As the Empress of India, Victoria had long been fascinated by the most exotic and important jewel in her crown. The dangers of the long sea voyage made a visit to India impossible, but now Abdul brought India to her. I think Victoria was just enchanted and enraptured with the idea of being Empress of India. He told her stories about India, fables about India. India for her was exotic, it was a 
a place of spices and saris and uh, a place of peacocks. It was the India of her imagination, which was a colorful and gay and um, exotic space. And Abdul satisfied her imaginative curiosity. She really desperately wanted to know about her empire. He certainly would have given her aspects of Muslim history. And one of the great stories of, of Indian Mughal history is, of course, Shah Jahan, the emperor. And that's how the Taj Mahal was built. She must have fallen for those great romantic tales. Young Abdul didn't just feed the Queen's romantic imagination. Within a few weeks of his arrival, he was also adding some zing to the royal taste buds. Evidence of Karim's kitchen revolution is recorded in the archives at Osborne House, Her Majesty's favourite residence on the Isle of Wight. Uh, well, this is a ledger, and it gives a, a fantastic account of the mountains of food uh, that were consumed here. The influence of Abdul Karim is very clear um, in the luncheon menu here, for instance. Um, every Sunday at lunchtime, there was always a, a curry dish provided on the menu. And here, on the 13th of February, it was a chicken curry. 20th of August, 1887, had some excellent curry prepared by one of my Indian servants. And we know that Abdul Karim and some of the Indian attendants uh, cooked these curries. They prepared the meat and procured their own spices and so on. And were given a corner of the main kitchen here at Osborne where they could um, you know, prepare these uh, authentic curry dishes. Uh, I suspect she rather enjoyed it. With Karim in her kitchens, the Queen's palaces were transformed into some of Britain's first and finest curry houses. But Abdul had ambitions to be more than just a novelty chef. Given his class background, which was fairly humble, I think most people in that position would have been fairly reticent. Abdul Karim was not. What he says to the Queen is that he is a very educated man, to the point of implying that he can be a teacher. Abdul was eyeing promotion. And in Queen Victoria, the would-be teacher found an eager pupil. At the age of 68, the Queen was a figure of great authority and much revered by her subjects. But her private life was marked by tragedy. Victoria had never fully recovered from the death of her beloved German husband, Prince Albert. For two decades, John Brown, her Scottish servant, had been the Queen's most intimate male companion. But in 1883, Brown died. And in Abdul Karim, the Queen found the ideal replacement. He was a very warm man. He was very uh, entertaining. He was jolly. He was a very human person as such. And maybe those were the uh, traits that uh, attracted the Queen to him eventually because he was a man who came across as a man of flesh and blood and I don't think she was used to real people around him. 
she wanted somebody with whom she could relate directly. Um, and she, she craves this kind of um, intimacy. You know, there's that famous quote, um, after um, Albert dies, she says, there's nobody who can call me Victoria now. Certainly she was very needy. She was emotionally hungry. And she grew up without a father and with a mother that she believed didn't love her. She did not have an easy childhood at all. So in later life, what she really, really needed was someone to give her unconditional attention. In Abdul Karim, she found a man ready, willing and able to provide it. Just weeks after Abdul's arrival at court, the Queen made a startling announcement. I am learning a few words of Hindustani. Young Abdul teaches me. He's a very strict master and a perfect gentleman. No more pots and pans for Abdul. The 24-year-old kitchen boy was now to be known as the Queen's Munchi, or teacher, entrusted with the honor of instructing the monarch in the official language of her Indian subjects. For the rest of her life, the Queen kept a daily record of her studies in a series of journals. Well, here we have uh, uh, an example from the Queen's Hindustani diary. Aaj ka din bohot acharaha. Shah Parsha aaj hamari mulakat ko main chand vaziron ke aai. The day was very fine. The Shah of Persia came to see me today with some of his ministers at two o'clock. The, the, the script has been written with a certain amount of fluency in a very enthusiastic way. She's trying to come to grips with, this, with something which is actually very alien. And the skill that is needed for that to be done at a competent level is going to be very, very significant. So what I see uh, is uh, actually I'm very impressed with what she was able to achieve only, what, about a year after she had started learning Hindustani. Over the years, the Queen's Hindustani journals would become a secret channel of communication between the monarch and her munshi. Some of the vocabulary seems quite suggestive. It's things like, the Queen will miss Abdul, translate. Give me a hug, translate. I don't think it is actually that. But it's stuff that seems quite personal and intimate that they, they felt the need to be able to say to each other. With his daily doses of Hindustani, his tales from the Taj and his mango chutney, Abdul had become the Queen's undisputed favourite. And she didn't care who knew it. Abdul was kind of like a pet really, like a beautiful tiger or something, walking along beside the Queen. And sometimes when they were on the continent, people were quite confused about who he was because he would follow her carriage in his own carriage. And it was said in France, for example, that he was a captured Indian prince that she paraded around just to show the might of the British Empire. But not everybody was so taken with the palace new boy. On entering royal service, Abdul had landed in a world governed by strict codes of class and protocol. At the top of the court hierarchy were the ladies and gentlemen of the royal household. 
When Abdul arrived at the English court, it was like entering a labyrinth with layers and layers of people going out and out and out. At the heart of it are the lords and ladies in waiting. These are, these are aristocrats. Then you get the, the actual servants who do the cooking and cleaning. So the idea that somebody who's a servant, who is an outsider, who has none of this pedigree, none of this background, can suddenly leapfrog um, into a position of great closeness to the Queen is something that they find, well, not only threatening, but wrong. Abdul soon found himself at odds with the royal household. Led by the Queen's private secretary, Sir Henry Ponsonby, and Her Majesty's doctor, Sir James Reed. The household had never been used to Indian servants, and um, they really didn't like it. Sir James had to deal with them medically, but there was much more to it than that because the Queen was obsessed by their clothes and comfort. She was always worrying, and Sir James had to, to have special tweeds made for them, but they had to be in Indian styles because she wanted them to look exotic. She gave Henry Ponsonby a dictionary, um, which I can just see his wry face. You know, I can imagine him going back to the family and say, no, she's given me a, imagine she's given me a Hindustani dictionary. I've got to learn Urdu now. Had Abdul just been pleased or happy with the, his position as a kitbagar, which is a waiter at table and all that, they mightn't have minded so much. But it was that he was getting special treatment. The palace simmered with quiet rage over the servant who didn't know his place. But the discontent was about to boil over into an unprecedented civil war between the Queen and her own court. Christmas, 1887. At Osborne House, the Queen's staff and family were looking forward to the traditional highlight of the festive season. There is this rather strange form of Victorian house party entertainment. I think it's a shame that it's fallen by the wayside, the tableau. What you do is that you get all your unwilling family and friends, you get them to dress up, you build your own scenery, but it doesn't really matter if nobody can act or sing. You just arrange yourselves into a sort of staging of an old master painting, or a biblical scene, and there are all sorts of, you know, people carry props re representing this, that and the other, and there are slightly wonky palm trees in the background. The Royal Andrams had been a fixture in the household from the early years of Victoria's marriage. Twenty-five years on, the Queen's children were still providing the on-stage talent, as were the aristocrats of the royal household. Usually the more important positions in the theme would be held by the more important people, uh, the, the, the members of the royal family. 
The arrival of Abdul Karim and the Indian servants changed everything. Once Victoria had the Indians at Osborne, this was a great boon for the staging of Tableau because now they could do scenes from the East and that sort of thing with genuine-looking characters. You know, if you needed wise men for a nativity scene, here you had them, straight from the East, the real thing. It wasn't only the royal repertoire that was transformed by Karim's arrival. With each performance, Abdul himself inched closer to the limelight. It's quite interesting to chart his rise to power from the early ones where he's a kind of an extra. Just the servant in the background. But as time goes on, he gets promoted, if you like. This was something I think uh, he was known to be very fond of. I understand he used to be the main star, the director, the, the overall and be all. There's one called the King of Egypt, where he's, <laughs> he's on a throne. <laughs> he has his own slaves fanning him. He's clearly the top guy now. This man was a waiter, but here he is as the King of Egypt. And although it was only on the stage, you know, it actually meant something in real life, too. The costumed capers mirrored a real-life palace promotion. By 1894, Abdul was already a regular presence at royal receptions. Now he was to be officially elevated by Queen Victoria to the position of Her Majesty's Indian Secretary. As for Abdul Karim, the Queen can never praise him highly enough. He is zealous and attentive, a thorough gentleman in feelings and manners. Karim had crossed a line. No longer a mere servant, he was now elevated into the top rank of the palace hierarchy as a member of the royal household itself. The Queen's gentlemen were not amused. In the household at the time, status is terribly important. And someone who came from India who was Indian probably wouldn't have held position or rank below stairs above the most junior parlour maids, housemaids, and junior boot boys. And so suddenly, when the Queen chooses this individual and places him not just in a position of special servant to her, but ultimately as her private secretary, this really upset everyone. Karim was not only overturning the established order inside the royal household, he was also about to fall out with the most powerful man in the empire, the Viceroy of India himself. It all started with a Christmas card. Hearty greetings to His Excellency the Earl of Elgin to wish you a happy Christmas from MH Abdul Karim at Windsor Castle. Flowerets fair as the morning light, wake for you, the earth be white. With hearts of gold and a breath of May and a wish from my heart to yours today. It's hardly likely that the earth was going to be white 
<laughs> but never mind. <laughs> At the Viceroy's mansion in Calcutta, Abdul's attempt to ingratiate himself cut no ice. For somebody to start writing in that very personal way to the Viceroy of India, an aristocrat of incredible standing, was extraordinary. Imagine it, you've been made Viceroy of India, you're dealing with the massive problems of the subcontinent. You're constantly dealing with people at the highest level of that society. And then suddenly, out of the blue, a Christmas card arrives from Abdul Karim. What do you do with it? Why has he written it? Who is he? Although Christmas was important, it was very much a family thing. And an intrusion from outside was, was not, I think, um, really expected. I just don't think that anybody really felt that you really ought to use Christmas uh, for sending some sort of a greeting. Well, why not just send an ordinary letter? I mean, it, 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 it was wrong at, in, in, and difficult, therefore, to make a, a reply. And uh, it was better overlooked. I don't think it was a question of snobbery or anything like that. It was, it was just incomprehensible somehow. Karim's card was returned and quietly buried in government files in Whitehall. When Queen Victoria learnt of the slight, she leapt to Abdul's defence. Victoria liked to, 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 to stir things up. I mean, you know, we know this because she, although she knew that the Viceroy despised Abdul, she insisted that the Viceroy should reply. You know, now the Viceroy was perplexed. He would not deign to, to, to write to a, a, a lower a creature from the lower orders, but he had to respond, you know. There was a place for everyone, and everyone had a place. But Karim didn't have a place. And, and so it made life complicated. An intruder, any uh, dirt that sort of got into the machinery, it was difficult to know how to remove it. The Christmas card fiasco and Karim's promotion as the Queen's secretary stung the royal household into attack. They used as a weapon Lord Elgin's former assistant, Fritz Punsonby, the son of Victoria's private secretary. Fritz had been dispatched to Abdul's hometown of Agra. His mission, to investigate Karim's family credentials, and he came up with some powerful ammunition. At court, Abdul had given the impression that his father was a high-flying surgeon general in the Indian Army. The truth was rather less glamorous. Abdul was, um, let's say, slightly economical with the truth about his family background. And he pretended that his father had had a position in the Indian Army, had been a glamorous surgeon. Um, Fritz Punsonby discovers that Abdul's father was in fact a lowly apothecary at the jail in Agra, and that Abdul's background was not nearly as exalted as Abdul pretended. 
Ponsonby's inquiries revealed that Abdul was the second of six children from a family of decidedly modest means. His father was a Hakim, or native doctor, at Agra jail. A young man of limited education, Abdul had also been employed at the jail as a lowly clerk, but used his father's connections with the British authorities to push himself forward for royal duty. When news reached the British court, the feathers began to fly. Here was a man who, in the view of the Victorian, was of a very low class, and in the view of the Victorian, was from a lesser race. By your presumption and arrogance, you've created for yourself a situation that can no longer be permitted to exist. You are an imposter. On the subject of your origin, we have a certificate from India about your father. You are from a very low class and can never be called a gentleman. To be called secretary is perfectly ridiculous. Abdul's embellishment of his past deepened the household's hostility, but the Queen Empress herself took a radically different view. As the household began to make their attacks on Abdul, researching his family background, saying he'd made grandiose claims, saying he was dishonest and that sort of thing, this just enraged Victoria. The worse the attacks got, the more she defended him. The Queen comes out with a, an interesting statement for the time that it's race prejudice. Because there were a lot of people at the time who thought that, well, the, the world is organized into races and some are better than others. I mean, this was an era of social Darwinism. Uh, so uh, she was definitely taking a stand on that. To make out the Munchie is low is really outrageous. Abdul feels cut to the heart at being thus spoken of. The Queen is so sorry for the poor Munchie's sensitive feelings. Under royal protection, Abdul prospered. The Queen gave him not one, but three houses at Balmoral, Windsor, and this one in the grounds at Osborne. She brought Karim's Indian wife to live at court and even offered intimate marital advice. My dear Abdul, I spoke to Dr. Reed about your dear wife. It may be she has twisted something inside which would account for things not being regular. I have had nine children myself and there is nothing I would not do to help you both. As the Queen's favorite and as an Indian, Karim was almost universally despised by Victoria's staff and family. And it wasn't only the color of his skin that made Abdul the subject of bitter resentment. If one knew him today, he would be a pain in the ass. He was pompous, conceited, you can see it in his face, and absolutely did not think of knowing his place. He pushed for whatever he could get, and he was a bit of a rogue. He was so pushy, and he was always trying to get more and more. You know, he got a huge amount of money out of the Queen. Obviously, you know, he got a bit too big for his boots. You know, he wanted to be um, given his, what he considered his correct status. And when he was on the train, he wanted to have a whole carriage for himself. I mean, he always wanted to be the top. 
And then the other Indian servants didn't like him either because he was domineering and unkind to them. He certainly un doesn't come out of it terribly well. He was manipulative. He simply abused the dignity in a way that he, he should have uh, had as a personal servant to the Queen. He, 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 he abused it. Kareem was so confident of his own importance that by the era of Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, he appeared to regard himself not as Her Majesty's servant, but as her master. In October 1897, a photograph is published in the graphic um, of Queen Victoria sitting at a table with um, Abdul standing right in the centre of the photograph. So the, the Queen in the photograph is a little old lady with a rather bent back. Abdul is looking straight to camera, um, a strong, big, solid figure, and much more dominant than the Queen. And the whole sort of iconography of the photograph suggests that the Queen is basically subservient. At every level, um, the, the photograph seems to offend ideas about hierarchy. This, this photograph produced absolute sort of horrified reaction, and I think it's important to, to make the point that Abdul organises for this photograph to be taken, and um, also, I think, sends it to the press. In their efforts to rid themselves of the upstart Indian, Abdul's enemies had failed to make his character, his class, or his race count against him in the Queen's eyes. As her Diamond Jubilee approached, they hit upon a powerful new weapon, Abdul's religion. In 1891, Abdul Karim set out for the short drive from Windsor to the sleepy village of Woking. He was on a visit to a controversial new building, the first of its kind in Britain. The Queen's munchie, Abdul Karim, went on Sunday to his devotions at the Mohammedan Mosque at Woking. This custom he observes every year and is met by Mohammedans from all parts of England who come to see the munchie and join him in prayers. Britain's first purpose-built mosque had opened its doors for business in 1889. But that didn't mean Victorian Britain welcomed Muslims. Across the globe, Britain's imperial interests were in conflict with Islam. There were military adventures in Egypt and the Sudan, tensions in the Middle East with the Ottoman Sultan, and seemingly endless wars in Afghanistan. There'd been a certain amount of fear of Islam for centuries. It became much, much more uh, explicit um, in the sort of late 19th century. So we have people like William Gladstone talking about the unspeakable and wicked Turk. He referred to the, the Quran as that accursed book. When congregations actually took place, there were indeed uh, assaults, um, physical assaults, missiles, bricks, people who were actually worshipping got badly injured. With Britain in the grip of Islamophobia, the presence of a Muslim within the inner sanctum of the empire was potential dynamite. Those responsible for running the empire soon found cause to be worried. 
The Queen thinks Mohammedans do require more protection than Hindus. They are decidedly and by far the most loyal. Abdul Karim was very influential on Queen Victoria's view of India. She seems to take a decided pro-Muslim stance. But in particular, there's uh, a, a clash of festivals and she actually suggests to the Viceroy that he should cancel the Hindu festival. And the Viceroy's reply is to point out that this would be just as difficult to do as cancelling Christmas in England. Karim was not only feeding the Queen with inflammatory advice over religious tensions in India. Increasingly, he was seen as a security risk in his own right. As the Queen's secretary, Karim had access to secret documents on vital matters of foreign policy in Russia, Afghanistan and the Middle East. Government officials feared he was feeding state secrets to Britain's enemies in the Islamic world. One of his jobs is to blot her signature as she writes her endless letters. But when people start saying, Abdul, Abdul is allowed to read the letters of Lord Elgin with important information about the running of the great empire, then this is, this is new territory, I think. For a personal servant to be close to the monarch is one thing, for him to get involved in politics is another. The question was, of course, was whether Karim, in fact, could read. And nobody really ever resolved that one. Um, but at the same time, of course, grandfather had to arrange for uh, a certain amount of uh, surveillance of a most uh, um, careful nature. In 1896, Abdul set sail for India on his annual holiday. But he was not alone. The Munchi is coming out. I'm not sure about the exact date, but about this time. But we should like to know if any of the intriguers in native states and elsewhere make any attempt to approach him. Do what you can with as little stir as possible. Tipped off by the Viceroy, intelligence officers were following Abdul's every move. Karim's name even appeared on a secret dossier, monitoring the political views of every prominent Muslim in the UK. But the Munshi was no militant. British agents concluded that on his holiday, Abdul was plotting nothing more than his own enrichment. Karim had travelled to India to take ownership of more than 140 acres of prime government land in Agra, a gift from the Queen as a reward for his loyal service. It was land that made Karim's family one of the richest and most powerful in the region. This whole area was allotted to him. He came with two ships load of gifts from England. and. Uh, very nice gifts from England. And the whole area was known as Karim Lodge. Now we enter his home. Uh, this is the original room where he used to receive his guests. 
He was very important person. Uh, I am told that even the Governor General also came here. On his trips home, the man who had left India as a humble waiter now enjoyed the libertine lifestyle of a Maharaja. His life was very lively. He loved music and dances, wines. He was very fond of arranging festivals and parties here, and they used to arrange dances of beautiful women, and uh, all the time there was a drink going on, and he loved music. And then he used to take these big people hunting. But Victoria couldn't last for long without her Abdul. By 1897, the Queen had become completely dependent upon him, to the almost total exclusion of her own staff and family. As the Diamond Jubilee approached, Karim took his place at Her Majesty's side. The household were beside themselves over the pair's growing intimacy. I think Queen Victoria actually loved Abdul as a son. Uh, we know from her letters they were deeply affectionate, her letters to him, and they were signed, Your Loving Mother. And so therefore Abdul was there, and he became like her son. When um, Abdul became ill, Queen Victoria insisted on visiting him, and she would visit him in his bedroom, this is the Queen, uh, going into the bedroom of a servant twice a day. She would sort of, you know, straighten his pillows and sort of stroke his hand and make sure that his um, fever was, um, you know, you know, <laughs> held his forehead, etc. Um, and and this, this, this was breaking all sorts of sort of taboos. But Abdul's life of luxury had left him increasingly plagued by illness. In 1897, at the start of Victoria's Diamond Jubilee year, the Queen's doctor, Sir James Reed, seized his opportunity to strike. Dr. Reed, who was charged with looking after Abdul, told the household uh, that Abdul had what he called Gleet, which was his name for, um, I think, gonorrhea. It's extraordinary when you think about it, really, that Dr. Reed should have breached his um, doctor's... <laughs> <laughs> confidentiality and broadcast this fact <laughs> uh, but um, he did and when the household are told this is totally unacceptable this is really the last straw for the members of the royal household consorting with an Indian was bad enough consorting with a diseased Indian was beyond the pale drastic measures were called for as the household prepared for their traditional Easter break in the south of France, it fell to the Queen's Lady of the Bedchamber, Harriet Phipps, to deliver an ultimatum. The household said, look, if Abdul's coming to France with us this year, then we resign. We don't want him. And the Queen flies into a wonderfully a rage that only a monarch is allowed to do. She was in such a rage, she swept all the papers off her desk. So it would have made a wonderful bang, all of this stuff going on the floor. It was a physical expression of fury. In the face of the royal tantrum, the household was forced into a humiliating climb down. Desperate to bring an end to the munchy mania, Victoria's own son, Bertie, the Prince of Wales, now stepped into the fray with an unprecedented attack on the monarch herself. 
1897, the world came to London. From across the empire, representatives of Her Majesty's colonies arrived for the Diamond Jubilee. But as the Queen's family and staff prepared for the ceremonies, the palace was marred in crisis over the monarch and her munshi. So it's 2012, it's the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and the Olympic Games, and all the world are coming to London. You've got to think of 1897 and Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee as the same kind of scale of occasion. All the eyes of the world were going to be on London, and most of the world had come to London. It was going to be the biggest thing that had happened to the monarchy. And yet, at the same time, this was the year of Munchie Mania. With just weeks to go until the celebrations, Victoria and Abdul dropped a bombshell over the Jubilee Honours. Kareem was a go-getter, and Queen Victoria was willing to um, facilitate this to a great extent. I mean, up to the point that eventually, late in his career, uh, she is going along with the suggestion that he should be knighted. After a decade at court, Karim already boasted a chestful of prestigious medals, gifts from his ever-admiring Queen Empress, and one from the German Kaiser. But for the Queen's ministers, the prospect of Sir Abdul Karim was one step too far. She was in danger of undermining the monarchy itself if somebody who was the son of a hospital orderly could be elevated to the position of a knight, then the message it's sending to all the other Indian princes is that all these different gun salutes, these orders of precedence, they, they're meaningless. Determined to put an end to the crisis, Abdul's old adversary, the Viceroy of India, joined forces with the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, to oppose Karim's knighthood. Victoria refused to back down. Queen Victoria was very lukewarm about the um, Diamond Jubilee. Um, she was undergoing, to borrow a phrase from her descendant, was her anus horribilis, a, a terrible year. She refused to wear a crown, and she, uh, at one point, threatened to pull out of the thing altogether. With the success of the Jubilee hanging in the balance, in April 1897, Queen Victoria's son, the Prince of Wales, stepped into the fray. After fraught discussions with Her Majesty's doctor, Sir James Reed, the pair came up with a plan. The following day, Reed visited the Queen and made his play. There are people in high places who know Your Majesty well who say to me that the only charitable explanation that can be given is that Your Majesty is not sane, and that the time will come when to save Your Majesty's memory and reputation, it will be necessary for me to come forward and say so. I have seen the Prince of Wales yesterday, and he says he's quite made up his mind to come forward if necessary, because it affects the throne. I think for the household, actually, to stand up in this way is, is very remarkable. 
And I think that perhaps at the back of their minds, or maybe at the front of their minds, is that the Queen is going to appear in public very shortly. The monarchy is going to be exposed to public view with the Jubilee. So it's important that things should be in order. The threat to have the Queen declared insane appeared to hit home. For once in her life, Victoria admitted defeat. Abdul would remain plain Mr. Karim. On the 22nd of June, 1897, the palace gates opened and Britain celebrated the Queen's 60 years on the throne. But Victoria had the last laugh. Throughout the celebrations, the man who had become her rock remained at her side, rubbing shoulders with Indian princes and European royalty. Ever the industrious student, Victoria ended the day with an entry in her Hindustani journal. Aj Harari Sawami Kajalsa. Bohat Kuchi or Amudijidi Se Katum Poha. Mosum Bohot Atacha. For the remaining four years of the Queen's life, Victoria and Abdul were inseparable. But in 1901, the Queen died, and Abdul's protection came to an end. Just days after the Queen's funeral, Karim received a visit at his home on the royal estate. Abdul and my grandfather were in Karim Lodge, and there was this group that came out from the palace. My grandfather was asked to go into the cottage and lay his hands on any documents which had the royal crest on it. And I think there was a concerted effort to erase him. It was something that he was extremely hurt about. Karim's treasured collection of letters and mementos from the Queen was destroyed. He was turned out of his houses and banished to India. The royal family's treatment of Abdul Karim after Queen Victoria's death was far too heavy-handed and unjustified. Uh, the fact is that he had had this friendship with the Queen. Uh, to deny that friendship was to deny, really, the last 14 years of the Queen's life. With Karim's departure, the traditional order and its stuffy harmony were restored in the royal household. And as for Abdul, he retired to his estates in Agra. But the local boy made good didn't live to enjoy his celebrity. The high life had taken its toll on Abdul's health. He died in 1909, at the age of 46. This is the last resting place of Hafiz Muhammad Abdul Karim. He is now alone in the world. His caste was the highest in Hindustan. None can compare with him. I like his chutzpah. Here's an Indian pushing himself, and uh, politically I would say that it's extremely good to cock a snook at the royal household. 
When you look at Abdul's sort of meteoric ascent in the court, I think he's, he's a very clever operator. He's uh, incredibly impressive, actually. I, I, you know, full, full marks to Abdul. From one fascinating woman to another, if you missed Elizabeth Taylor, Auction of a Lifetime, catch it on 4OD, worth a bid. Now, next tonight, a young boy's affliction, a mole that's grown to cover almost half his body. His daunting story, Turtle Boy, Body Shock Special, coming up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.